0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren, Mr. Brian
1: Turnoff. Brian Turns is here today to be the co-host. T- well, hello, and technically it's pronounced turn-off, but well, uh, turn-off, I'm not yes. going to correct you on your own show. Well, it's the turn-off. Uh, <laughs> the tr- the Brian turn-off. turn-off. <laughs> well,
0: I didn't, I don't quite, because it's, now you've changed your name to turns on social media. Brian That's Terns. to keep
1: away creeps like you, unfortunately, we're already connected, so, <laughs> so they can block you and then find well, you. Are, you. It just It's more of a hassle, but yes, yes. They're <laughs> coming after you because you're called turn-off? And uh, no, no, no. Just like I like out of nowhere, like a bunch of people from high school, from you know, God knows, decades ago, started trying to reach out. And I'm like, I I don't know why we're you know why why we're connecting now, but uh, why, uh, so try to, try to try to minimize that.
0: I I would say. Yeah, they didn't
1: like you back then. Why would they like you now? Why pretend now? Exactly. All these years <laughs> later, clearly I still have a scar about it. But no, um, <laughs> yeah, I just decided that it, it was time to go a little more private in today's. Uh, you know, I guess, uh, lack thereof, privacy. Well, there you go. So now we know. Now everyone knows. I was going to say, and then you just just threw out the name there, so I'm going to have to now revert back to my old one, I guess.
0: Yeah, change it to the game.
1: Thanks, Al.
0: You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to be helpful and bring charm, charm and pleasure to everyone. That's one way of putting it for sure.
1: That's one way of framing that.
0: Well, now, we're, we're, we're going to continue that, uh, you know, with charm and pleasure, and today we're welcoming a guest <laughs> who's uh, written a book called Anton LeBay and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. So, Mr. Carl Abramson, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. Nice to be here.
0: Hopefully you say that at the end of the show. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, Carl, this is interesting because... Um, uh, th- th- it can be kind of a controversial subject, and Church of Satan can be kind of a controversial thing to talk about. So um, how did you decide to write a book on it?
2: Well, it had to do with my long Uh, relationship and friendship with the founder of the Church of Satan uh, obviously Anton LaVey Uh, and uh, it is a long and winding story but to to sort of uh, make that a fairly short story is that when I was a young teenager in Sweden I was interested in the things that were, you know, dangerous and provocative and, you know, as you are uh, when you're a teenager. And, and uh, one of these uh, huge topics was, was occultism. And within, underneath that, you know, big umbrella called occultism, you come across uh, Satanism and specifically Lavey's brand of Satanism, and again specifically through his book, *The Satanic Bible*, a book that came out in 1969 and hasn't really gone out of print since then. Uh, I find found all of that stuff very cool. I found him cool as a kind of an uh, uh, American um, icon and an anti-hero in a way, and a countercultural hero. Um, there were so many interesting facets, so I became fascinated. And then what happened was that when I started a band, because that's what you do, you know, when you're young, you start a band, and I wrote a song about LaVey's relationship with my teenage paramour or or uh, object of teenage lust, Jane Mansfield, the beautiful actress. Um, and, you know, they had a fling, they had a relationship, and she was a member of, of the Church of Satan. So I wrote a song about that, and then a, fr- a mutual friend, um, uh me and lavey the british musician genesis porage said that you when that record came out you should send that record to lavey he i'm sure he will appreciate it and of course i had nothing to lose so i did and i didn't expect anything to happen um because it was just you know a rock and roll song and i knew he didn't like rock and roll but anyway i got a beautiful letter back from anton lavey you know I'm, my mind was blown at this time uh, and things happened pretty fast uh, I saved up money and I went over to to San Francisco in 1989 and that's when I met him for the first time and I'm sure he was curious about who I was and I wasn't sure whether I would be sort of you know welcome back after that first initial visit but anyway it developed into a beautiful friendship and one that I have cherished um, very much all throughout my life And then, you know, he died in 1997, and, you know, life takes over, and you start a family, and, you know, these things happen. But I would say some five, maybe between five and ten years ago, I had these thoughts, you know, wow, why was this so inspirational for me, and, and you know, what actually happened during these... uh, this is because I was there like almost every year uh, during the early 90s. And and I decided to uh, ask, int- basically interview uh, friends from then who had been there with him also at the same time, uh, but also other people that I knew were there but that I didn't know personally. Uh, and that turned into the project uh, Into the Devil's Den, which was it, it, which is a documentary film. And... Anyone who works with film knows it's uh, it's a bitch. You know you have to cut away so much material. Um, so I decided I want to make a book out of this and use more of the interview material that I had, and that's the foundation of this book that just came out, Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. So it's basically my original curiosity and my being mind blown about hanging out with him, and you know it was beautiful, but gradually changed inside me into to, uh, thinking about why was this so impactful? Uh, how did it change my life? And, you know, why do I still hold it in such um, high esteem in a way? That, that's the basis of it.
0: Well, you, um, so what, what did you think of him before you met him? And, and what did you think of the Church of Satan? Did you have any serious thoughts on it or were you... Pro them or negative, or did you have any sort of feelings?
2: No, yeah, I was absolutely pro. And the thing is that um, you can look at this from from uh, you know many different perspectives. One is, for instance, you know the philosophy or or uh, the uh, magical system of the Church of Satan, and then you can look at him as an American, uh, you know, uh, countercultural uh, icon in a way. And and all of these things interested me. I was very interested in in magic. Um, as a phenomenon, you know, as a possible tool of transformation, uh, but also as a phenomenon in uh, in our culture and in previous cultures. And he was something who brought something very new to the magical table, um, meaning that he didn't rely on old arcane patterns and old wisdoms from medieval times and you know uh, neo neo um, you know. Pythagorean mystics and and that kind of thing Uh, but basically he came up with his own thing um, which he codified and called Satanism and it's basically a very kind of egotistic uh, philosophy and egotistical magical system which is pleasure based, it's very Epicurean in a way and and um, the using these sort of dramatic symbols of you know Satan and these sort of names from um, you know Judeo-Christian history basically, but also from other parts of the world. You know, so that that's one thing. I thought it was very fresh. But then him as a person, I knew that he was very you know intelligent, a great musician, had a great sense of humor, and all of these things. I'm very very happy that I could uh, you know. Uh, get to experience firsthand and see that it was true it was not some you know little fan club that tried to you know laud him and, and boost him um, but it was a real congregation of really nice intelligent people who were doing very interesting things so I was pro from the beginning in my youthful you know curiosity and, and um, that feeling is, is still with me after having experienced uh, you know him and, and the Church of Satan
0: was was he all what you expected? Like when you actually met him, um, did, were you surprised or were you totally getting what you thought you were?
2: Yeah, I think it was, you know, at the time when I met him the first time in 1989, you know, he was 59, uh, which is not really, you know, uh, that old, but he, I could see that he was a bit, you know, failing in health. So my first experience is, the second-hand experiences of him were through, um, there's an old documentary from 1969 called Satanis, and I'd collected a lot of you know, archival material in terms of interviews and photographs, and uh, and, and they usually um, had him in his prime sort of late 60s, early 70s, when he was completely flamboyant and completely out there in Um, you know, manipulating media in a way and being on all the talk shows and Johnny Carson and all the magazines and men's magazines. So my first impressions were more of that guy who really knew how to handle uh, media. But the person I got to meet was, of course, that's later in life, so he was a bit more... uh, He wasn't a recluse, but he was reclusive. You know, he liked to stay at home, uh, play music. He was a great musician and hang out with friends. And I think what happened at this time um specifically maybe uh, throughout the 90s uh, was that he um, hung out with with uh, a younger generation basically uh, because i think it vitalized him uh, see you know him seeing his ideas getting a new audience in a way but also perhaps as being fertile soil to take his uh, ideas and seed and, you know, the concepts on. Um, and I felt at the time uh, that it was just uh, remarkable and he, that he was really, you know, a fantastic, nice human being, but also a great magician in the sense that he had something. He had worked with co- the codification and conceptualizing. Um, radical philosophical and and uh, magical ideas, and he, of course he had written books. But this there there are other ways of, of uh, leaving legacies, and that's through uh, living people. And, you know the people that he met at that time. Uh, most of them are you know still alive and doing things like you know I just wrote this book, for instance. So this sort of carrying on. Uh, I wouldn't say perhaps not a legacy, but certainly carrying on the spirit of his endeavors, you know, whether they be magical or philosophical or just simply artistic, you know, because he was also a great, uh, you know, fantastic musician, for instance, and liked to paint, and, you know, a very creative individual. And I I can feel that as time moves on, that um, he's probably more well-known Uh, today than he was 10 years ago and 20 years ago and then then suddenly we're back almost into the heyday when he was very very famous so I think at the time when he died there was kind of a dip but now he sort of resurfaced in the uh, I don't know uh, almost in the mainstream I would say
0: yeah. You, you think that's a good thing? You think it's good to have him out and, and Absolutely. for people to find out? Yeah,
2: because it's a viable alternative that for me, uh, you know, I'm not a spokesperson, uh, you know, neither of him nor of the Church of Satan, uh, but I think it's just so filled with common sense. Um, if you look at it, it's like I, in the book, uh, I call him America's Pop Nietzsche. You know, he sort of brought uh, Nietzschean ideas into... Uh, a more, you know, <laughs> I, I think I call it uh, bringing the, you know, Nietzsche into the uh, American uh, living rooms, or into the li- American TV couches, in a way, basically popularizing these ideas that, that don't necessarily have to be highfalutin philosophical ideas. But what are these ideas? They're about empowerment, individual empowerment, in a similar way that. Um, Other Americans have. Ayn Rand, for instance, has been instrumental in in, uh, affecting, you know, American culture and American society. Some people don't like it. Many people do. Uh, But you can never look away or shy away from the fact that her ideas have affected um, American culture as, you know, uh, the ideas of Lavey has done that too, and of course Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and all these people who created this original impetus for the philosophy of will basically um, they are complicated, but they it seems to be that they always become more and more disseminated for each generation that that uh, uh, studies them and and express their you know, a condensed version of their philosophies for the modern times. And that's exactly what Levey did. It was a condensator and a filter in a way. And then, of course, you could say, you know, why do you have to call it Satanism? Why do you have to use that symbol? Well, you know, I think he wanted at the time, meaning mid-60s, he wanted to have attention for the group, for himself, to have a career based on controversy and, um, you know, a cultural... Uh, public presence, and he certainly got that. And it did become all of those things. It did become a career. It, it made the book sell. It made the Church of Satan grow. Uh, but at the same time, the main thing for him was always the dissemination of Uh, his philosophy which is basically, you know, you have to find out what you want to do in your life and then you just have to do it, no compromises, no no holds barred uh, because otherwise you will be prone to and subjected to uh, neurosis and problems within yourself because you know what you want to do but you're not doing it. That's a problem, that's a big problem in in, uh, Western culture. So I think he was uh, filled with common sense. He was controversial, he was provocative, and he used these terms that obviously are not to everyone's liking. But he did it to break through a kind of a veil of uh, passivity, of of, um, a pacified public, in a way. And I think he did manage to to, uh, pierce that enough to to create fairly big interest.
1: The Anton LaVey of the 60s and the Anton LaVey of the 90s, I imagine they have some fairly big differences? I mean, how, how did his opinions change over time about Satanism, Church of Satan and all the things he practiced uh, initially?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good question because as we, we all know is that uh, we don't remain exactly the same and, you know, there are no um, there's no standard time for when you like peak in life this is my peak when I'm 31 or 35. Uh, we all have our ups and downs and we all Change as persons, but of course he concocted this um, uh, philosophy uh, he sometimes he called it the religion other people have called it the religion uh, but anyway, the Church of Satan and the philosophy of Satanism he concocted that certainly in his prime and he um, lived in it and he promoted it and and they created a big buzz. Uh, then of course, you know, time moves on. You have to deal with other things, focus more on family, these kinds of things, and then of course you grow older and you may grow infirm, and and uh, the exteriors so of the outside world may not develop to your liking. I can feel that. <laughs> great you know, extent myself today, I'm, I'm 56 and I don't look at the world the same as when I was 23, that's just natural so what I could perceive in him was perhaps that he was a, even more uh, misanthropic in a way when I met him, uh, he was uh, sensitive to the you know, stupid things in media and I think to a great extent he tried to avoid uh, reading newspapers and watching uh, TV and stuff like that. He just believed that it dumbed you down, and I, I can agree with that. Um, There's really uh, nothing good comes from reading about you know too much stupidity. Um, whereas in the past, meaning the 60s and the heyday, I think he was more prone to you know um, pick a good fight and and be present in that public arena where you could be and on. Uh, Stupid talk shows on TV or radio, and just uh, meet these opposers or whatever people who were obviously critical. But it gained he gained from from uh, being part of that uh, I don't know uh, dialogue of of uh, diametrical uh, opinions in a way. Uh, when I met him, he was much more. You know pleased to be at home uh hang out with friends, and talk about these concepts for sure, uh, but not necessarily to go out there and be on um, uh, t v and radio and media in general. There were a few interviews with fairly big newspapers, uh, but there was also this thing going on at that time, which was called the satanic panic i don 't know if you remember that, but it 's all of these uh, people sort of remembering uh, satanic sacrifices and all these, you know, horrendous, uh, fantastical <laughs> stories that the police, you know, pretty quickly uh, debunked. Uh, but it did create kind of an atmosphere of uh, paranoia in, for for everyone who had a divergent opinion, you know. If you weren't, like, you know, a devout Christian, you, you could be a victim of their hatred uh, in the sense that, you know, people could make up fantasies about... What they had experienced in your presence or whatever, you know and that's horrible when that happens, but um, so I think to an extent he certainly preferred to be uh, within the confines of his own home and safety and and uh, when he looked at the world in the '90s, I could feel that he had a lot more um, cynicism and, and misanthropy in a way. Um, the, the the overt sense of humor had was perhaps a little bit more subdued.
0: Do you think he felt his life was under threat, somewhat?
2: Well, yes and no. I I I wasn't there, you know, present to the extent that I experienced anything like that. But for sure, I mean, um, you know, he lived in this house on California Street in San Francisco. It's a beautiful little Victorian house that was painted black, and everybody in the neighborhood. Uh, knew, I mean he was a San Francisco celebrity not necessarily infamous but actually famous so everybody knew uh, that that was the, his home and the headquarters of the Church of Satan so you know of course you know jocks and and morons uh, drove by and threw things at the house so eventually they had to put up like a a fence in front of the house but there were incidents where people were actually shooting at the house too and when you're inside with your family I mean of course that freaks you out you know that's just natural so that may be another um, reason for him retiring a little bit into his own world and to his own safe uh, environment Understandably,
0: do you think the public didn't really understand him? Didn't know who he was?
2: Well, I don't know the public. What is it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's a vague term. But but in general, I think that um, if you look at interviews, I mean proper journalistic interviews and documentaries from the time, uh, you know, when the Church of Satan was sort of uh, say between zero and five years old. Uh, Good journalism always has, you know, the pro, pros and cons the people talking for and against. And it seems to me that San Francisco at this time was, you know, we we know that it was a very liberal place, you know, with all the, the flower children and the hippies and, you know, a lot of experimentation going on. And that uh, later on remained in the sense that, you know, uh, has always been a place of, of uh, let's call it gay safety, LGBTQ safe haven in a way and it also always had that spirit and, and I think that uh, for people outside of that environment, like I said he, in San Francisco he was famous, not infamous whereas in the rest of America you know, perhaps in the Midwest he was certainly infamous uh, and uh, people uh, perhaps didn't want to understand him whereas in San Francisco there was always this kind of dialogue, you know, what are these people about and it was more of a you know, possibility to express your your divergent opinion. Uh, so I think that you know, the water always finds its own level, and and um, you know, people didn't only have impressions coming from uh, talk shows and TV and and that kind of thing. It was mainly through uh, his books. You know, Satanic Bible came out in '69, followed by the Satanic Rituals and the Satanic Witch or the Complete Witch, as it was called. Uh, so, and these books were doing well. Like I said, the Satanic Bible has never been out of print since 1969, which is, which is a re- remarkable feat. Um, so, the ideas were spread through the books, and whether people could uh, understand it or take it to heart, uh, obviously, some people did. You know, if the books are selling, you know, not not all the books are thrown thrown in the trash can. Um, and I think that um, he also was smart in his networking. He liked to hang out with you know movie stars and celebrities and that kind of thing. And uh, you make an impression. And I think he his philosophy also lived on in those. Um, impression networks where people, you know, talked about him and that they had met him and about what he had said about his philosophy and stuff like that. And I think for many people it might have been too, uh, not heady, but perhaps a bit too controversial. You know, like people can say, wow, I really agree with what he's saying, but I'm not going to be... uh, out and out Satanist. I'm not going to define myself as a Satanist because it could hurt my career. Or it could hurt this and that. But LaVey was always very, uh, understanding about these weird, you know, foibles and machinations of, of the human culture. So he always said, uh, you know, it would be uh, paradoxical to demand of someone to, you know, um, Claim, you know, define themselves as Satanists because it's much better to be an, uh, a covert Satanist and enjoy that than being a miserable, overt Satanist who you know, always gets uh, criticism or you know, aggression where in fact they just want to enjoy life. So it's better to sometimes be, be uh, quiet about it and, and just um, uh, enjoy it in secrecy. That's, that's uh, something that LaVey uh, supported 100%
1: researchers who have um, looked into his history, they have found some inconsistencies in, in I guess, what we would say, the, the legend and reality of Anton LaVey. I mean, you know, for example, I think you talked about having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, being a worker, uh, working as a photographer for the San Francisco Police Department, um, and yet there's no real evidence for that. I mean, how do you, as a, a fan and a friend, reconcile that?
2: Yeah, well... There are two ways to look at that, according to me. Uh, and first of all, you have to look at what kind of person he was, and what kind of person he wanted to be, and what kind of, you know, persona he wanted to emulate in a way. And and um, he came from a background where he sort of he he didn't go to college. He worked on a circus and a sideshow. Uh, which has been completely verified, you know, he worked with big cats, lions and tigers and also played as as a circus and sideshow musician, he was very skilled that was actually his main profession as a a musician Uh, and in that world, you know, there's this thing where, you know, it's the greatest and it's the amazing and it's the legendary, you know, you have these PR <laughs> uh, discourse, which is necessary to attract uh, people. So he was, you know, the, the great Shandor because his name was Anton Shandor Lavey. And uh, he lived in that kind of thing and developed in that kind of, uh, um, uh beautiful, um, world of exaggeration in a way. So there's a wonderful expression that is usually called when, when some people are trying to uh, define themselves in a way that might shock other people, is that they tell a truth and a half, meaning they, <laughs> they exaggerate a little bit to create a persona um, that is something that they want to achieve. Everybody does it daily. Who work, you know, in social media and with selfies and uh, trying to present something that they're not. You know, uh, the thing is that for LaVey, it was a conscious thing. It was not something pathological. Um, he was just um, leading a larger-than-life life, and that was provocative enough for people to question whether all of these things that he had actually experienced was true or not. Uh, for As for the people who, who you know claim, that, that, I mean, that's one thing. And then if you want to go into details and, and sort of nitpick about various things, um, I know for a fact that in the archive of, of uh, the Church of Satan, there are, uh, what do you call them, slips from uh, salary payments from uh, uh, the San Francisco Police Department for his photographic work. And I'm sure they could drag that out if they want to. Uh, as for flings and romances with Marilyn Monroe, uh, isn't this uh, merely a matter of, <laughs> of, of envy? You know, because do people really think that Marilyn Monroe did not have casual sex while she was working as, a, uh, as an exotic dancer uh, or in her young life? Of course she did. Uh, as do many women and many men, um, so I, I can't see why it would be such a problem. Uh, because he was there at the same time; he did play music at the Mayan and other clubs where she was actually dancing. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't see it as a problem. Uh, many of the things that have, uh, you know, people have tried to debunk they themselves have been debunked by simple facts and you know historical records and stuff. That's not saying that everything he said should be taken at absolute face value. Because again, he liked to tell a story and a half. And that's usually what great storytellers do. They tell a story in a way that is simply so fascinating and enigmatic and, and uh, alluring in a way. And you don't really do that by <laughs> journalistic reporting. You do it by literary means. And that's how I look at him. Um, I know for a fact that uh, he certainly entertained me. And if, if I mean, he had great things in his house. He, he claimed to have, you know, Chico Marx's uh, hat and showed it to me. You know, if that's not Chico Marx's hat, I really don't care, you know, (laughs) because to me it was. So in that sense, I wouldn't call those things uh, absolutely not lies. I would call them, you know, very interesting objects that can bring out entire stories from someone who absolutely uh, led a fantastic life, really a larger-than-life life.
0: life. What's your favorite memory of Anton, personal memory? Uh,
2: I think I would have to say moments in his kitchen uh, which is where he had these racks with all his synthesizers Um, and it was so amazing because um, being a a kind of a musician myself in that kind of experimental way that was you know quite common in the late 80s uh, basically meaning you can't play (laughs) but you use synthesizers (laughs) to sort of create soundscapes or whatever but here was someone who had uh, a great amount of synthesizers, some of which were quite modern, you know, and and he had programmed them all uh, with sounds that sounded like really old uh, instruments, like from bands from the 40s and circus music and uh, these weird, weird sounds. And then, of course, that's all fair and fine, but he was an amazing musician. And again, I mentioned uh, Chico Marx's uh, hat. I mean. There was a lot of Chico Marx in him when he was playing. You know, this kind of thing where they're playing music on the keyboards, but at the same time, it seems their fingers are having a life of their own, like really dancing on the keyboard. Uh, And that kind of thing, he was just so involved in the performance that uh, you couldn't help but just you know, stand there and laugh hysterically because it was so much fun. And he was also someone who could... Like, for instance, one occasion I asked him, uh, well, you know, can you play something Scandinavian it's because I come from Sweden? And just he just hammered out a tune uh, that, uh, you know, it was, it was, I recognized it as a hambo. It's kind of a folk dance thing. Uh, and I recorded that and I called that the satanic hambo. But then a couple of years later, I realized this is actually an old Danish Christmas song. Uh, um, and I just wondered, how the hell could he know that? You know, have some Danish Christmas carol or song in his mind that when I asked him, he could just hammer out. That's an amazing ability that some musicians have. It's not, not only that they can play, but they have music in their own repository, in a way, in their mind. Um, so those moments were really fantastic because... That's when he really shone. He was very, very happy and joyful. Uh, and you could see that that was his main passion in life.
1: Did you uh, ever participate in any, you know, like magical rituals uh, with him?
2: Uh, yeah, we, you could, that's a matter of definition also. If you th- if you uh, look at it from, you know, going into this, uh, you know, dark chamber and there are people in hoods and, the nude lady on the altar and stuff like that. That didn't happen then. That sort of ended in the mid-70s in that kind of flamboyant way. Uh, However, uh, there are some definitions that I find more appropriate, which I think stem from the British magician, Alistair Crowley, who said that, you know, it's uh, magic is the... you know, art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Basically, anything that you do that promotes your desired goal is an act of magic. And in that sense, yes, we we uh, talked about things and we uh, hung out and strengthened certain things and and uh, uh, so in a sense, we we created something together that led to certain things. Absolutely, uh, I did also get. Uh, uh, married, I traveled there one year with my girlfriend at the time and I asked if you know he would be cons- if he could consider to, to, uh, to wed us and, and he did. So in that sense we had some kind of, I don't know, uh, taste of what it was like back then when he was actually in that kind of the mode of the priest in a way. Uh, but it was very romantic and sweet and, and just very uh, amazing to, to be a part of that. But there was no like uh, flamboyant hocus pocus going on. no mm-hmm. oh darn it. <laughs> um,
0: well, it. so do you think the Church of Satan is quite a bit different now under Peter Gilmore than it was with LeVay, and I mean in sense of rituals and things like that?
2: Well, I think that uh, you have to look at it in partly you know the people who are, are uh, running it, but also in the times we 're in, you know, meaning both an internal and an external perspective. And uh, things changed very rapidly, I think, after LaVey died from that external perspective, mainly having to do with uh, the Internet and the the rapid development of uh, life and culture and communication and congregation and human culture basically taking place online. And I think that... uh, uh, Peter Gilmore, Peggy Remia and also Blanche Barton, who was LaVey's partner, basically the people who, who uh, are leading uh, the Church of Satan, they were quick to realize that, uh, you know, this is not an option. You know, we just have to, to, to have a strong Internet presence. And uh, that is, I would say, the, the key thing today, to have a site that's completely informative, transparent, uh, fun. Uh, keep a good archive, basically allowing people who are curious to get all the answers uh, they need uh, by spending some time at the site. And then in terms of of leadership in general, uh, I don't envy anyone in that position. It must be hard, mainly because of (laughs) perhaps online criticism. I mean, it's so easy to to, uh, be critical uh, online. But on the other hand, I think they're very used to it and the organization is certainly doing well and it seems very stable and, you know, um, well run. It's it's a functional thing. So I think that LaVey, if he had lived longer and then perhaps uh, remained in power but perhaps wasn't strong enough to truly go with the flow of technology and stuff like that, he was he was interested in it absolutely um, but, uh, I mean, it's just pure speculation, maybe it would have taken longer for the Church of Satan to adapt to, um, to the modern times but, you know, that didn't happen and what happened was that uh, the Church of Satan is now a very active and sort of contemporary presence
0: Yeah, yeah, Peter Gilmore almost had me joining, but when he said there wouldn't be a big pile of Guys coming here with capes to have sex. I was like, oh no.
2: no. <laughs> well, you can and do nothing. that on your own free time. Well, right? I,
0: oh, I know that's what he said. What's that's why next? he started the House of Mystery. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I can do that myself. <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> you know, I mean, but uh, well, what went on in the Black House, as you call it? Like, what what kind of things would go on there? What, it, what was it just? Sitting around having coffee, or what? What? what happened?
2: Uh, well, uh, I, again, I can only I can only speak for myself and what I experienced. And it was usually at this time the same kind of uh, mo, you know, the same kind of modus operandi, which was everything happened at night or began in the evening and went late. And you would uh, come by, and we would have maybe a coffee or a drink at the Black House and just chit chat. And then knowing that we would go out for uh, a late dinner. Uh, driving to some, some great restaurant. You know, San Francisco at this time was very, very nice. And then returning to the house for, uh, for let's call it hanging out. And that meant uh, watching movies, uh, talking a lot, uh, watching him play uh, music, um, and just uh, being filled with, uh, I don't know, it's very much uh, an old school kind of uh, conversation. That never really ended. It was very, um, uh, I felt that he was equally interested in what I had to say as I was, obviously, to hear what he had to say. And that, you know, of course, is inspiring when you're a younger person and you're looking up to this older person. Uh, And he was so filled with stories. It was a joy to listen to and ask questions, you know. And, and, um, so and then what could happen was also like you know 2 a.m. There could be a buzz on the door, and then someone would come in who you know had been out to a party or whatever, and come by for a little bit of chit chat, and then just go again. You know, so it was very social, but it was low key. There was no you know no heavy drinking, nothing spectacular in that sense. Uh, it was kind of calm uh, and based on conversation regardless if we were watching movies or or, uh, enjoying his music. It was um, a free-flowing dialogue of of many, many interesting topics.
0: So uh, when someone picks up the book and takes it home, um, what are you hoping that they take away from this book?
2: Well, I'm hoping that it's um, a little bit like an antidote to his usual presence. I can see that changing, but I'm thinking specifically he was – on one of the more recent uh, seasons of uh, American Horror Story, for instance, this kind of youthful uh, horror uh, TV series, and you know, as this sort of bad guy, Satanist, you know, demonic, but it looked like him and he was introduced as as him, um, and that creates kind of a cheesiness to yeah, it takes away a little bit of the uh, potential that the LaVeyan philosophy has to really inspire people, but then on the other hand, I'm not sure he would agree. I, I think that LaVey would be happy about the fact that he's in a way honored because he was used to being ridiculed or bad-mouthed, and I think he ascribed very much to, you know, the May West, the philosophy of May West and Jane Mansfield, that there is, you know, there's only publicity, there's no bad publicity. Um, so. I hope that my book can be uh, kind of a substantial antidote to the cheesiness that, with which he's usually presented. Because my book is, um, the first four or five chapters are my own recollections and my own feelings of having been there and what we talked about and, and uh, just the hanging out aspect. And then for the film originally and also included in this book are all my interviews with people who were there at about the same time. And some, you know, some perspectives differ, but in general, we all shared the same experience because being there was kind of it was the same for everyone. But it seems that he sort of read us uh, or scanned us, and he sort of presented us with with the uh, stuff that I think he thought intuitively that we would be uh, prone to or interested in. Yeah, I don't know, carrying on in a way. I remember specifically him. Um, Taking books by Ben Hecht, you know, the famous uh, screenwriter from the 30s and 40s, uh, books that he had written about uh, more philosophical. Uh, topics and some old horror fiction that he had written and he took those books out and he read to me and I mean how often does that happen that someone reads to you from a book you know uh, that's something that your parents <laughs> do in a way if you're lucky uh, but but um, that was so special and of course I loved Ben Hecht then and I love him even more now but it was just so that was one of those seeds that sort of grew on me like why did he do this did he really want me to, to uh, carry on kind of a Ben Hecht Energy or or whatever, and other people had other things you know they were presented with other things, like the photography of, of William Mortensen that those seed actually grew uh, over the decades to become beautifully published books on and by William Mortensen through publishers young publishers who were there at about the same time as me, and there are other examples of that, so the interviews in the book people who experience that talk about their own experiences. Some things we share, some things we don't. But it, the book gives, I think, a very accurate picture, uh, not in a, in a critical or analytical way, but it gives an insight into the human being uh, that, that he was to us. It's not an attempt to create like the ultimate biography, uh, but it's a very uh, great piece of history writing, I would say, because it's all based on first-hand uh, sources.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting point, you know, the philosophy of a human being, and that's kind of what I see him as and his his the way he approached things. But a lot of the... You know, mainstream world. Again, we're going back to mainstream, but there, there's a concept of of Anton LaVey as being like a Satanist, where they you know eat children and animals and bloodlettings and all this sort of stuff. Do you think they'll ever people will realize the difference, or, or that, that there is a different philosophy? Yeah, there? I think
2: so, and I think so. It will it will be uh, evident and obvious. Uh, to the people who really have the capacity to understand. Because I have to say, unfortunately, my experience of life is that some people simply don't have that capacity to understand, and they never will. You know, and it's not, you know, we can't, you know, cry over spilt milk or whatever it's called. Uh, But the the, uh, thing is that that's something I think has changed uh, over these past decades, or perhaps the past decade, in the sense that there have been books. Blanche Barton has written a beautiful book called We Are Satanists. That's her, it's a kind of an extension or an expanded version of her, her um, uh, book called The Church of Satan that came out originally, I think, in 1990. Uh, but it's also filled with more uh, stuff. And there's um, another book was written fairly recently called The Satanic Warlock as a complement to The Satanic Witch. But it's written by uh, member of the church, so it's a sort of the canon in a way is being expanded by living authors within that environment. So that's, that's a very healthy thing and therefore I think that it will never be a static or inert environment where people can sort of project their own fears or foibles or prurience or all of these things on something that cannot in a way defend itself because it is still a very vital and thriving uh, group and philosophy. And what I hope that my book can, can uh, bring to that table is again, is that showing him what he was really like for all of us who actually were there. You know, so, so in that sense, I think that uh, the people who have the capacity to uh, understand that and also to take part of this material. I think they will see him in a more nuanced light than 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And I think that uh, they, he will come forth in a way as what I called at the beginning of the show as um, you know a countercultural icon in a way. Yeah, back then he was controversial. Uh, in a group of many controversial people. There could be you know, anything from you know Allen Ginsberg was controversial, the hippies were controversial, Tim Leary was controversial. They were all on par, perhaps representing different things, but they were part of a, like a countercultural wave in America at the time, mid-60s to, to mid-70s, basically. And LaVey had his particular niche. And, and I certainly think that he belongs up there with the greatest of them. And I think he would agree. Uh, I don't think he agreed so much uh, back in the day because he wouldn't want to be associated with those people. But I think looking back at that you know, specific slice of American history, now uh, there were key people who, who uh, created a lot of change in American society, and I certainly believe that he was one of them. You know, And, and uh, I think that people today can now begin to understand that because they can be unaffected by the uh, prejudice of morons and they they can themselves take part of first-hand material
0: so um how do people get a hold of you or find your book or do you do social media? Where, Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I think the the best thing if people want to get in touch with me uh, and all the social media presence is simply through my website, which is carlabrahamson.com. That's Carl with a C and Abrahamson with two S's. Carlabrahamson.com. Um, and that takes you on to all kinds of things, you know, links to where they can see the film, for instance, and all my social media stuff. And the book itself uh, is uh, widely available uh, wherever people usually buy their books. If they have good bookstores, uh, they can get it there, where the bookstore can help them, them uh, get it. Or, of course, go to uh, Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble or w- wherever you buy books. Basically, it's there. Great,
0: of course, we'll have that up on our website as well. People can find you with one click you know it's all It's all there so you you know when you look back at this, when you wrote this book and you went through the whole your memories and you and you put it together do you ever notice or realize how much
2: um that ten years or so changed you? Absolutely. Uh, And it it was also, it wasn't an exclusive thing. I mean, of course, it was an exclusive thing to be invited and invited back to to, uh, the Devil's Den, in a way. Uh, But for me, at that time, it was a very expansive period of my life when I was deeply uh, immersed in exploring Different facets of magic and what I call magical anthropology. So I was having a blast, you know, really uh, talking to, interviewing, meeting a lot of magicians and magical people, uh, philosophers, uh, uh, and Lavey was part of uh, that beautiful uh, cauldron in a way that really affected my life. So, and I think that if I wanted to say, you know, how important was he to me in in this cauldron, in this uh, entire spectrum of things that were going on in my life. And I would say that he was like, you know, top three. He was very, very uh, instrumental in my development. And I still uh, carry on a lot of, you know, cherished memories and, uh, uh, yeah, still inspiration from him and his way of uh, approaching things. Uh, He approached things with a sense of humor, with common sense, with a kind of clarity, uh, and especially how he expressed himself. He was very inspired by uh, Ben Hecht, as I said, and also uh, Mencken, Mark Twain, all these beautiful American satirists, in a way. You know, you you can be very sardonic and critical, but there's always this little gleam in the eye. Uh, that could be defined, or certainly defined by him, as satanic, you know, um, poking a finger at hypocrisies, uh, poking a finger at, uh, you know, seemingly pathological uh, neuroses of of our culture that could be better. You know, everybody could be better if they weren't so confined to being victims of their own self-deceit. That's... that's, um, how I interpreted his, his basic philosophy.
0: Wow, well, I wonder, I guess it's impossible to really know, but I wonder how he would deal with today's world.
2: <laughs> that's a, a great <laughs> you question. Know? You know, in one part, I think he would have loved it, meaning gloating, you know, gleefully gloating about how far can this go? You know, is this really end times? But he would have a good time, again, poking fun and sort of, uh, pointing his finger, not necessarily in a in a in a satanically moralistic way, but m- much more like you know, I told you so. This thing where you know and you've known all along, and now you can see it uh, not only on TV but out there in reality too. That how how strange our culture is, how strange American society is, and how weird the machinations of the world you know are moving right now, but. I would like to quote, you know, uh, something that Blanche says in the film and also in the book about, you know, his misanthropy because people always refer to him as a misanthropist, and yes, he was. But Blanche said that, you know, uh, I would have to say that he was an idealist because he, if he, if he weren't an idealist, he would never have done all the things that he actually did. Meaning. Uh, formulating and disseminating a philosophy that was helpful for people. Because if he were a pure misanthropist, he could just have stayed in his black house and enjoyed life, you know, and enjoyed his own pleasures. But he he was out there on the forefront uh, and presenting his, uh, you know, satanic philosophy, uh, and these ideas for people to take on if they felt that resonance, and in the hope that it could change their life for the better. And that's really what an what an you know kind of an egotistical altruist does, or an idealist does.
0: Pretty amazing, pretty 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 good book. Everyone, uh, pick up the book. It's called Anton LeBay and the Church of Satan: Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. And the author has been our guest, Carl Aberson. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Tired of wasting time trying to
1: decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews.
2: You've been listening to the House
0: of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,
1: or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
0: Show's over for now.